Hello and welcome to episode 95 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's your host, Dan Sally, and I have asked the big Gino to forego the standard intro music this time around as uh, the subject matter is something near and dear to my heart and something on the more serious side. So it's serious, folks, just like when dad calls you into the office. As I mentioned in the last episode, I've been curious about the systems that America's built on, and the killing of George Floyd last year brought our system of law enforcement into the spotlight. So I started doing some research and came across the work of this week's guest, Julian Goh, professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, and he's done extensive work documenting the history of policing in this country, and I brought him on to discuss. Now, for those of you who've listened to this show before, you know that this was a challenging episode for me. Uh, Among my friends, I have people of color And I have law enforcement and the state of today's dialogue around policing and how it disproportionately affects people of color uh, makes it very difficult to have a nuanced conversation in a public way. And I I tend to be very conflicted personally uh, about it as as I don't think there's always a way to communicate it publicly in a productive manner. So... I'm going to be following this episode up with another episode from someone in law enforcement in a couple weeks, and what I'm hoping is that the two will give us a good picture as to what the problems really are. So what did we inherit from history, and what can we change to solve them? If you have comments, I would love to hear from you, so email me at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, like you're saying hey Dan at ydhty.com with any feedback. And if you like this episode, please give it a review, share it. And if you haven't subscribed already, this is your invitation to do so. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. One of the things we talk a lot about on this show is how history can be used to really understand some of the thornier issues of our time because it is a lot more difficult to argue about what happened than it is what's happening. I did not say impossible because it is 2021, so it is still possible to argue about what happened, but it is more difficult. Now, in the past year, police reform has been front and center in the national dialogue after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, It's been a highly contentious issue and Uh, And it really spurred me to start doing some research into the history of modern policing. And that is why I am very happy to have today's guest, Julian Goh, professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, here to join me. And welcome, Julian. Thank you for uh, joining me here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah. And, you know, I guess to kick things off, you know, what started our conversation was, Uh, a paper you wrote on the origins of modern policing in the United States and some of the ways our uh, our military policy specifically over, let's say, the last 150 years influenced it. And so I really want to dig into that to give 
the folks watching and the folks listening and understanding as to kind of how we got to where we are today. You know, so maybe just to just to help set the stage for folks, can you can you talk a little bit about the origins of modern policing? So when did it start and and what really spurred the the initial change? Yeah, that's a really important question. And it's something that, you know, I don't think a lot of people know. I, I, one of the things about policing is that we kind of take it for granted. We just think that the way policing is today is the way it's always been, and it has to be. Um, and the first thing you'll learn about history, as, as you know already, Dan, is once you dig into the past, you, you realize that the way things are today are the result of decisions that have been made and a whole series of things that have happened. And it's not like a natural line. So um, that policing is a good example, right? I mean, up until basically in the United States, up until the you know, 1840s, 1850s, we did not have police departments as we know them, right? What we had was the system of, of watchmen and uh, constables. And these were basically, um, uh, the watches were basically groups of initially volunteers, the citizens who would sort of go walk around and just make sure you know, uh, bad stuff doesn't happen. And, and they weren't 24 hours. They weren't professionalized. There was no police departments. Um, and so this all changed. Um, it, it started in England um, and, and in the United States, we inherited the um, this concept of a watch system. So, but England had this system as well. And in, in, in 1829, they changed their system to say, let's, we need a modern police department. Um, well, what became known today as a modern police department where they had full-time professional staff of, of, of officers who would, um, you know, they wouldn't be volunteer, they would be paid, it would be a whole new system for dealing with crime and social disorder. And, and that happened in, um, in 1829, and the United States um, basically then adopted that system, starting with uh, New York in the 1840s and 50s, and then in the South, Cities like um, Savannah were among the first in the 1850s, and then Boston. So basically, all these cities around the world just, you know, got rid of their constable and watch system and, and replaced them with what we know today as modern police systems. What drove that decision then? Was it just urbanization? Was it industrialization? Like, what was the big motivator behind the decision to professionalize policing? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of factors. One of them was urbanization and new population growth. Um, there was also a lot of problems and inefficiencies with the constable and watch system. Um, and so there were those factors were involved. But, you know, one of the things I've learned from digging into the archives and, and, and reading up on all the you know, years of work that historians have already done and adding my own work, um, one of the things I found is that, you know, this was really a a product of some racialized fears is the way I think about it. Okay. Um, this, so, you know, when you say urbanization, it sounds like a kind of benign process, but yeah. at the time what urbanization meant was um, fairly wealthy white elites facing an influx of new populations who were mm -hmm. poor, destitute, working class um, and who frightened them. <laughs> and, yeah. and at the same time, you had uh, a sense that crime was on the rise, but for these people, right, state officials, for, you know, the wealthy white establishment, um, they immediately associated crime and blamed it with uh, upon these new people coming in. These were mm -hmm. immigrants. These were foreigners. In London, in fact, um, one of the driving forces behind the formation of London Metropolitan Police and in other English cities was the influx of Irish uh, mm -hmm. from Ireland coming in. And at the time, you know, the Irish were considered like 
a, a, a racialized other. They were considered, you know, not quite white. Um, and this this has changed now. But at the time, they were, you know, akin to, you know, the African American slaves, at, at least in the eyes of of the establishment. Uh, in the United States, the same thing. In New York, Irish populations coming in. In the South, it's a somewhat different story, but um, it, it's the same general idea. It's racialized fears really got the white establishment thinking we need to create a more powerful system to basically um, regulate and stop these uh, these basically racialized others um, from, from, from causing wreaking havoc. Um, in the South, it was um, slaves, it, it, slave population actually had been changing at the time. Um, they initially, of course, were working on plantations, but urbanization in the South at the time meant what? It meant that a lot of slaves were being hired out to work in the city, and then the, their their owners in the on the plantations would get, um, you know, get 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 the get the get their wages. And so there was a whole new farming out system that was emerging precisely at this time. This posed a lot of uh, problems too, a lot of uh, a sense of, of of fear that you know who's going to watch these slaves in the city and in Savannah? You know, there's all these slaves running around, their masters aren't controlling them. We need an, a better system. So, you know, it's not the only factor, but it is a crucial factor. And that is this sort of sense of, uh, of, 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 as I said, a racialized threat. The one thing I've learned in the 18 some odd months doing this podcast is how in America, I think our view of order and our view of law is is really almost built on this idea of like of this like fortress ideology in a way and it's funny like where i'm sitting right now i am literally like three blocks that way from the oldest wooden frame house in north america and when these people came here their the the primary way you kept the peace was by keeping natives who weren't happy you were there out of your stuff and and it almost seems as if we've just continued to kind of execute on that same programming without giving it much thought. Well, yeah, no, there's a, it's, it's, it's a, an extension of the frontier mentality to a degree, right? That, that you're a settler in a strange land and, and there's dangers out there and these dangers are of a different race. And maybe that's similar to kind of what you're saying, right? There's a kind of settler mentality, but this is happening in the cities and you know, again, we take things like population migration for granted today, but this was, you know, kind of fairly new things happening to these to these cities, um, where the way that the industry was growing, you suddenly need a lot of cheap work laborers, and, and even in the South, you needed um, slave hands. Um, to, to fill in these jobs. And so you, you had immigrants coming in, foreigners, or in the South, again, you had slaves coming from the plantations. Um, and you need, on the one hand, you need these populations. At the same time, what that does is spark exactly these kinds of fears that settlers have on the frontier of, of you know, people are going to come in and they're going to ruin ruin our sense of order. Um, and again, this, this is a, uh, I think you're right to pinpoint this as a kind of a long-standing sort of notion of of you know the way you deal with um, threat is to either build a wall around it, but what what policing represented was you know you can't build a wall around it because you need these these people to come in, um, and so you have to deal it in other ways. So you know think about it this way: policing in the 19th century emerges was a new way of creating a wall. It was a way of maintaining sort of walls internal to the city by having a powerful organization that can regulate and, and control these populations. It's no accident, of course, that 
that um, these communities were policed heavily, right? They were the ones that the police was for, right? When white residents built these policing systems, they weren't thinking about, oh, it's because my kid is going to get into trouble and, and the police need to stop these law, you know, these people breaking the law. They said, we need a police to stop those people, right? The, these immigrants and, and these foreigners and these, you know, slaves. Um, so at a, that's, Sounds similar to kind of what you're saying, but it's a sort of, it's a, you know, policing is a wall within the city. Let's put it that way. It's a way of maintaining new kinds of walls. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real trite analogy, but I remember uh, playing SimCity not too long ago, the the version from the 90s, which is the old DOS version. And for the folks listening, there are three items on the SimCity budget. There's transportation, there's fire, and there's police. And if you underfund police the city breaks out in riots. And and it was funny because for the first time playing it, and I played it obviously a long time ago, for the first time playing it, I realized that that's really, the, the, the again, the programming we're running on, this idea that order is really kept at the end of a gun. And if we don't have people there to maintain the unruly crowds, things are going to break out and you know everything's going to burst into flames. And the other notable thing about Sim City is there's no education budget, there's no healthcare budget, there's yeah. you know none yeah. of the things to keep a society going. So um, I didn't bring you here to talk about video games, but I thought it was applicable, so I'll, I'll throw it in. No, I mean, look, this is we you know there's a sense in which that video game mentality is permeating us today, and there's earlier incarnations of it in 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 in, 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 in at least in the minds of people. This it's it's this this notion that if you don't have force uh, meet it out on certain populations, then, you know, your, your life and, and liberty is at threat. So it's yep. very much a longstanding thing. Um, and it's, it's, it's not rational in many ways. Right. And we could talk about the contemporary situation later, but I'll just, you know, I'll just, you know, remind people that, um, you know, there is this video game mentality of, you know, we're constantly under siege. If we don't have police, we're going to, you know, fall apart, but, you know, Ask police officers you know, how much time is spent dealing with serious crime or even violent crime, right? I mean, actually, the average police officer makes probably one felony arrest a year, the last stats I've seen. Um, violent crime calls make up less than 5% of the calls that police receive and represent, right? And even less of their time actually on the job. Um, there's, there's various scholars like Alex Vitale who's talked about this. Um, and so we have this not very rational image of the reality of what's going on in our cities. And, and we immediately go to this, this notion that, well, we need these um, heavily armed police to save us from all this, these dangers. But, you know, the, the video game analogy, man, is totally right because it's a video game, which means it's not real. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny too. The thing I'll, I'll bring up because I always like to give a nod to the folks listening who are of different partisan stripes, but you know, if you're hearing this and you're kind of feeling a little, uneasy or you're feeling a little triggered. The other thing I'd like to throw out there is that the police themselves don't, don't, aren't looking for, for violent interactions. You know, they, that is, that is the exact last thing they want. And, you know, it was funny. I was having, it's funny that we're having this conversation now because just a week ago I was at my son's ball game and I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who happens to be a police officer. And we got into talking, you know, this is the first time we'd seen each other face to face since COVID and had a long conversation. And, you know, I was talking to him about uh, obviously the stories that have emerged on the news, you know, George Floyd being, being first among them. And he just talked about how sickened he was by the whole thing and how 
um, and and how any day where you have to use violence as a way to get your to do your job is a horrible day. You know, we've talked a little bit about the profession, the professionalization of the police force. The next phase in that reform that you cite is comes from abroad, actually. And we start to borrow tactics that we use, uh, that the U.S. uses in some of its foreign incursions. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's actually um, a lot there. And I'd actually talk about two moments, even at this yeah. founding moment um, in the in the mid-19th century when police departments are first formed, there's an element of this uh, importation from abroad. Um, if you go back to the, the London Metropolitan Police Department, which as I pointed out was sort of the real first modern professional police department as we know it in 1829, the idea of that kind of police did not just drop from the sky, right? This isn't. This was. This was a, a new idea. And the guy who started it, Robert Peel, who um, uh, he was a you know uh, he, he was the uh, uh, prime minister um, in, in England and secretary. He largely came up with this idea, um, and he brought it from colonial Ireland, right? The English had been in Ireland, um, had taken land in Ireland and was ruling Ireland as a kind of colony and ruining ruling Irish people as subject to colonized peoples. And in order to carry out that project, they created essentially what I would say are really the first modern police departments, heavily militarized, uh, heavily armed, uh, full-time professional forces to, you know, theoretically watch, um, you know, watch over the, the the safety of the settlers. But, you know, this was really about maintaining a colonial order. And, and so you had something like the Dublin Police Department, you had the Irish, the Royal Irish Constabulary. Um, these are organizations that are essentially counterinsurgency organizations meant to suppress the Irish people. Um, and so that the English could, could, could realize their interests. Robert Peel served as essentially the colonial governor of Ireland, responsible for creating some of these organizations. And when he was then in London, and, and, and was looking for ways to change the constable and watch system, he said, let's use these forces, um, these kinds of forces that we had in Ireland. And so let's have a millet, like a hierarchy, a professionalized um, hierarchy with, with, you know, rank. And, and, you know, today you can say like, oh, a police officer, you think of a police officer sergeant. That's taken directly from the military. And that was an invention at the time, right? There was a decision that was made that let's model these police departments after the military, including, you know, military rank and hierarchy and training and discipline. Um, and so that, that from the beginning was a, as a, as a, was a military kind of thing. And again, this is hard, I think, for a lot of people to understand. We take it for granted that you have to have a police department that has you know military rank and military command and control and is armed and all this stuff. But these are choices that people have made historically and, and created. These are socially created institutions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's funny you talk about Ireland because so my grandparents all grew up in Ireland under British occupation and then mm. and then came here. So they're they're, you know, they uh, I, I don't. I think my grandmother was in her teens when she renounced her British citizenship. Um, but the funny thing is, you look at the police force over there now, and it's a much different. Uh, I think it's a much different structure than you see here in the United States. Mm. Um, and and it's really, I think it's really built more on. I, I, in, in the phrase they use is more peace officer than police. Mm -hmm. It's really it's really based on 
and I think more the concept of of maintaining public order than it is, you know, again, sort of serving as a wall against this violent threat that just permeates society. Your work actually states that a lot of strategies that developed policing in the United States were based on colonial wars in you know the late 1800s and early 1900s, right? Yeah. So then, you know, you have you know, the way I would think about it is when you look at the history of policing and you look at the history of sort of militarizing the police, you know, borrowing weaponry or tactics or mindsets from the army. There's a long history there. It goes back to the beginning yeah. of policing and there are different phases or moments. And so the early moment is something I just mentioned in England. In the United States, a really important moment happens in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and this is where they, uh, this is, I think, what, what, you're, what you're getting at with, with um, borrowing from colonial tactics. Um, you know, what's happening in the late 19th century overseas is the United States is conquering the Philippines, um, Puerto Rico as well. Um, it's creating a new overseas empire. And in the Philippines, you know, the Filipinos didn't like this. So in 1899, when the Americans <laughs> were trying to take over, yeah, they're like, yeah. I don't want you. You know, actually, the Filipino, Filipinos have been subjected to Spanish rule for 300 years. Along yeah. comes the United States saying, no, we bought you from Spain. Literally, the United States bought the Philippines from Spain and said, now you're our colonial subjects. And the yeah. Philippines didn't like that. So they revolted. And there was a protracted guerrilla war, you know, probably the first true guerrilla war, sort of jungle guerrilla warfare that the United States involved in, um, was involved in. And um, there was like a, you know, a, a massive counterinsurgency apparatus that the Americans constructed. A lot of innovations happened actually and militarily through this Philippine-American war, as it's sometimes called. Um, but what does that have to do with policing? Well, everything. I mean, uh, one of the guys who was a veteran of that war comes back uh, to the United States. His name's August Vollmer. Now, any of any folks out there listening who've taken, who are, if you're a police officer, I'm going to bet you, you know who August Vollmer is. Um, if you uh, take a, took a criminology class in college, I'm going to bet you, you know who August Vollmer is because he's all over the policing textbook. He is known as the father of modern policing because he had all these fascinating innovations for policing. Um, Actually, what they don't always mention these textbooks is that August Vollmer is a veteran of this, this very formative Philippine-American war. And a lot of those techniques and tactics and strategies that he adopted and applied to policing that have made him so well known today, a lot of those were borrowed from the Philippine-American war. Um, and a lot of other policing tactics come from colonies uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, one example is, um, I guess today you would call it... Um, crime mapping. So, you know, it, you you would collect all this data, police departments today will collect all this data, and they'll map out where the most crime is happening in the city. They use that then to sort of determine, okay, well, we need more police forces there, right? Um, so they will put more patrols there or something. This is a tactic that Vollmer sort of invented, right? Um, you know, before this, the police department, they were sort of, it was basically on guys on beat patrol walking around these neighborhoods. And, you know, it wasn't that sort of rationally planned out. And, and there wasn't a lot of sort of notion of like, let's let's direct forces where there's a lot of crime and so on. It was largely neighborhood, local-based um, policing. Volmer came along and said, well, let's map out where the crimes are happening in the city. And then um, let's put our forces there. He took that directly from the, the, the American military campaign in the Philippines, where military strategists had been developing this technique of, of mapping an area, finding out where the insurgents are, and, and then sending forces to those areas. And Vollmer you know, repeatedly said that we need to use this kind of tactic. 
40%, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition, and in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one. If you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. Is our policing a reflection of our kind of colonial programming or our colonial habits? Or is it just kind of one and the same tactic in a way, you know, where we are just, we behave as occupiers because that's how we started? Does that make sense, sir? Yeah, the chicken and egg. Like, are we, well, well, for policing, like the history of policing, I, I think it's more, the line is a little bit clearer in the sense yeah. that you have um, experiences overseas or with like Native pop- American populations in the West, you have these colonial experiences, and then they are applied for policing um, at home. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit more direct there. Um, okay. It sounds like, you know... I, it sounds like you, you know, you could make an argument that that's just the way we are. Like we're inherently, um, uh, I don't know that that's kind of like you're saying, Dan, that we're inherently like racist and occupiers. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think that that's yeah. an irrelevant, I think that's an irrelevant point, right? I think, yeah. I think the real point, the real point is, you know, when I think about this, another way to answer your questions is, yeah. is, is to think about, um, how baked in some of these things are from the past, right? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that people get really sensitive about, um, whether it be police officers or just any people, when you talk about things like racism, they always say, look, that happened in the past. We're not racist anymore. You know, and then we end up arguing about how racist people are today and so on. That kind of misses the point. The point is that the past is the present. The past shapes the present, right? It, mm-hmm. These things that happened, in this racist history, colonial history, they still persist. They get institutionalized. They get baked into our systems, uh, and including policing systems. Right. So, um, yeah. can I? I'll give you one example. Um, Please. One among many examples. You know, Seth Stoughton, who's a wonderful legal scholar, uh, former police officer. He actually testified in the Derek Chauvin case. He um, has this um, argument that that 
that is is pretty much well accepted, which is that police today have been trained in a warrior mentality, right? They've been trained uh, to, to to think about uh, dangers around every corner that 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 they could get killed at any moment, right? To have this almost video game mentality, he calls it the warrior mentality. Um, and, and that's embedded in training. Now, one thing you have to understand when you think about the history of policing is that that warrior mentality doesn't just, it's not like every year police say, okay, here's our training program. We're gonna train everybody like soldiers. No, this is an institutionalized thing that has been going on for decades and decades and decades. It's rooted in these earlier moments where policing borrows from the military, borrows from our colonial tactics. It gets baked into the institution and then we kind of robotically continue it and follow it, right? The warrior approach, the, the warrior mentality that, that police officers have, that policing has, the idea also, the related idea that crime is primarily a matter of non-white people. These are all things that are kind of, I guess, to use your word, habit, right? They're habits that have been formed historically, right? And that have been formed through this history that I think we need to understand a little bit more about if we're going to understand the present. So does that make sense? I mean, I, I think that this, this borrowing of these things overseas has a, a longer lasting effect. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. And I think that that's kind of like, that's you, you, you more succinctly stated what, what I think I was driving at, which is that um, that in a lot of cases, the next generation comes into, the next generation of law enforcement comes in and is effectively living in the house that somebody built a hundred years ago. Yeah. And all the wiring in that house just so happens to have been made sometime around our, you know, war in the Philippines or, yeah. you know, our, yeah. or, and, and, and maybe, and, and so on. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I'd, I'd love to, to talk about a bit, because this kind of gets more into, I think the era of law enforcement we're in today is, is the importation of counterinsurgency techniques from Vietnam into America's cities. Cause I really feel like if you want to look at maybe the modern, the modern view of the city or the modern view of, uh, of crime in the United States, I think a lot of it really kind of synthesized in the 19, in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I mentioned how, you know, the way I think about the history of policing is that there are these constant, well, there's these recurrent moments where policing tries to do reform and they try to do things differently. Um, and actually what ends up happening is typically the, the, the reform is really just to militarize more, to draw more from the military, right? And mm -hmm. so I think you have these different moments historically. The early 60s through the mid 60s was exactly, you're totally right, Dan. This was a very formative moment because um, you had a, a new round of racialized threat. You had, you know, uh, the Watts riots and you had African-American, you know, people's so saying, you know, this is, you know, let's we can't again, we can't take this anymore. Um, yeah. And 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 so the police react how by militarizing, you know, SWAT teams that we have today. Again, your your listeners who don't think about the history much might be interested to know SWAT teams have not always existed in, in American policing. They were invented in the mid 1960s by uh group of officers in Los Angeles, um, a couple of whom were Vietnam veterans um, and, and, and World War II veterans, um, who in facing the Watts riot sort of saw in sort of African-American um, uh, insurgencies 
saw what they thought is similar to the anti-colonial insurgencies overseas, um, to anti-colonial rebellions, and said, well, well, then let's use some of those tactics and forms that are used against those anti-colonialists um, overseas. Let's use them here at home. Lo and behold, they came up with this idea of the, the of SWAT, which is a special tactical team, um, which you know initially was 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 called special weapons and tactics um, tactics teams, um, and 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 it's 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 still they're still thought of as that, but but initially that was this was a new a new a new thing, um, so that was one example of how this the sixties. Um, led to more militarization. And it's the same dynamic. It starts from a racialized threat, right? These these uh, African-Americans are going to, uh, you know, overthrow society. Um, it's not accidental. One of the first major operations that SWAT teams get involved in is what? Attacking the Black Panthers, right? These are, this is, these are militarized forms that come from tactics that have been used on non-white peoples overseas, brought to America to use on non-white Americans. Um, and, and so there's a real uh, complex history here, but that's the sum of it, I would say. I'm gonna ask a question for the purposes of, of bringing in a, a viewpoint that might disagree. A lot of what we've talked about is the whole idea of this uh, system that was really built up out of fear over the uh, influx of non-white or the influx of the other. And, and people would say, yeah, that happened. And they would also say that regardless of the level of, of militarization we have today, that it's not targeted at any one type of person. It's targeted at the criminal element. What are your thoughts on that, that comment or that question? That's a great question. And it's a very important one because it's something that I hear all the time also. Um, now, there's a couple of things to consider here. So first of all, the thing about these tactics or weapons, they may originate because they're used for certain purposes, but then they can be used for other people and other purposes. And that's exactly what happens right now. SWAT teams, it's it, they get used disproportionately on um, non-white communities, but they can also be used on everybody, anybody else. And that's actually when white America gets really pissed off <laughs> is when they start using that stuff that was supposed to be for the, those, the others, they start using it on us. Now we're going to resist militarization. Right. But until yeah. then, it's fine, <laughs> yeah. right. So, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. And, and I would say um, that if you really look at the history of crime and if you look closely at the discourse of crime today, it's very difficult to take out of the American mind criminal from non-white. Yeah. From the beginning, there's been an equation between criminal and other or non-white, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that's exactly why police departments were formed initially um, and modeled after these colonial forms is because, you know, the idea was criminals are these racialized others, they're the immigrants. Um, and and that, so we need to use those same things, the same colonial forms and militarized strategies that we use on criminals overseas, the enemy, um, we need to use them at home. And that, Again, it operates from the assumption, which is there from the beginning, that yeah. crime comes from the non-white element. And you see this all the way down, everything from the recent you know, lack of uh, 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 policing of the capital rioters, right? The assumption mm -hmm. that they're not going to be, you know, possible. you see it in, in tweets, you see it everywhere, right? If it's a, 
uh, African American people rioting. It's it's like uh, you know let's let's call down uh, all the military upon them and that they're just all criminals. But when you know the Boston Red Sox win and you have a bunch of white fans looting stores, you know you don't get the same response. And that's not called criminal. That's called victory, right? Um, you can just see it everywhere, right? It's 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 everywhere. This association with criminality and race, I think, is really strong and powerful. And I think we need to question that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know what, it's almost like, it's almost like, and I'll take the the white perspective here um, for, I think most white for, for, for the white American population, it's kind of like a magic eye calendar or a magic eye picture. And mm. either you see it or you don't, right. you know, e- either you see the unicorn or you just see a whole bunch of fractals and you don't quite m- make anything out of it. And, mm. and so it is very difficult um, it is very difficult to, 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 I think, attune people to that. And to your point about Boston sports, I want to say it, if it wasn't the Red Sox, it was, it was the Patriots, but this is going a couple of years back. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you might, you might, I think you were in Boston at this time, correct? Probably. When, yeah. 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 When that, there was a, a student at Emerson who got shot in the face with a beanbag. And again, these people were overturning cars. They were, they were, <laughs> they were destroying property. And she got, I mean, tragic, got hit in the face with a beanbag, died as a result. Um, but that injury or that that person's death was front and center. Yeah. And the culpability of the police was front and center. So to your point earlier about how the militarization of police isn't a problem until white people uh, yeah. encounter it. I think that's case in point. Yeah, there was a town in New Hampshire a few years ago where um, apparently the residents caught wind that the uh, city council, town council, I forget the name of the town, um, but there was a small sort of, you know, predominantly white town that caught wind that the, t- that the city council was going to get a tank from the army because there's this longstanding program um, whereby uh, police can get military surplus equipment from yeah. everything from uh, Humvees to, to military. So there was this town in, in, in New Hampshire that... that they were going to get this uh, ostensibly for counterterrorism purposes, but the predominantly white residents did not like that. Um, and, yeah. and they protested holding up signs. My favorite one was um, uh, uh, more Mayberry, less Fallujah. In other words, like let's not bring that stuff to here. You know, our town is Mayberry, but look at, they don't, they get upset when it's coming to them, right, on, on their doorstep. But as long as it's in the urban cities where the real criminals are, it's okay to have, you know, these militarized things. Yeah. And I and let me know if I'm getting too far out of your expertise here. But, you know, one question I have is, so let's just take, you know, Ferguson, for example, right? And, um, or, or Chicago or St. Louis, right? Um, cities that, that do get a military surplus do use that against predominantly, uh, you know, predominantly non-white populations. Who makes the decision to do that? That's my question. Because I mean, my 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 in, in my mind, you'd have a group of people elected by this population making the decision to uh, to effectively like militarize their own police force against their own people. So, is there some disconnect, or is there some way that you know police departments are maybe kind of going rogue in a way and 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 gearing up without yeah. against the wishes of the citizenry or 
Well, you know, look, in, in that exact example, um, the police have a large autonomy, a large amount of autonomy. So it actually, yeah. as I understand it, um, and I don't quote me on this, but I'm going to I'm going to hypothesize that I, yeah. I'm going to sort of from, from the cases I've looked at, the police just make a request to the federal government. That's this, the program is called the um, LISO program, the 1033 program. Okay. Um, the police make the, the requests um, and, and the people don't know about it. Right. Um, you know, and, until they catch wind of it. Um, and, and, you know, this has hap- been happening since the mid 1990s. Departments all around the country have been accruing billions of dollars worth of surplus military equipment and citizens didn't really don't even know about it. Right? Yeah. So and, there's and, there's very there's a huge disconnect between. What yeah. Well, in this do. program, too, my understanding is this program effectively gives them the the equipment basically for free. If I'm. Yeah. Or, or, oh, or completely. Free. Yeah. 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 And so. And so what you have, just to just to just to explain this for the folks listening, you know, what you have is you have a situation where then there is a department that is is acquiring military gear, is acquiring military surplus. They don't have to get any approval because it doesn't come out of their budget. And it's not yeah. necessarily a decision made for, or it's not necessarily a decision the voters have a say on unless they choose to say it, to talk about it. But you the by the time you don't really know the decision is made. Until yeah. like the Humvees start rolling in, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 you know, I will say that this program has gotten attention recently. Um, there's been resistance to it from both the right and left. In fact, yeah. recent bills have tried to stop this program, and Republicans, uh, some Republicans, are behind it because it is a. It's very questionable, right? You have all this military gear going to police departments, and it, it's it's not shown to really do much. It's it's yeah. it's it's. If, if anything, I'd argue that this is part of that larger problem of militarization. Because when you borrow even just military equipment, you also end up implicitly borrowing the mindset of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that's the problem. It's And it's actually deeper than and bigger than just borrowing military equipment. I, you know, it's not like you can just stop uh, getting military equipment as a police department and suddenly all these militaristic ways of thinking are going to go away. It's, it's, part, it's part of a bigger package. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to, you know, as, as the folks listening really think about how to, un, how to un, uh, maybe unwire this, um, you know, there's there one of the points that I've made a lot on this show is that, you know, talking about police reform in and of itself is fine, but it doesn't have the police don't exist outside of the culture at large. Yeah. And the police are reflective of the opinions of the people who ultimately they serve. And so a lot of it too involves us as a as a culture asking ourselves. Are we a society that requires violence to keep order? Is that is that what we were built on? Because I think that that's really, um, in a lot of cases, uh, in a lot of cases, taken for granted. Um, now, I, I've I've tried to behave myself and not ask too many questions about the hot topics of today. Because, I, like I said, I, I always try to keep within the scope of your work. But you know, one question I have to to cap this off is. You know, if I were listening to this and I were really concerned with um, issues around policing, or I wanted to think about ways to positively affect the situation, you know, who are some? What are some resources you'd recommend? Who are some authors you'd recommend diving into? Like, what are some things that you'd recommend folks doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a very uh, important question because there's a lot of folks right now. There's a huge movement going on right now to rethink 
it's not so much rethinking policing, it's rethinking public safety, because that's part of what we need to do is change the discourse and, and imagine a world where, you know, we don't solve social problems by putting guns to them, right? That's essentially, policing is saying, you know, the way we solve society's problems is by putting guns to them. And there's always alternatives. And people thinking about those alternatives include, um, you know, prominent people in these protests that you see, activists. Um, there's great scholars like Alex Vitale and his, has a book, The End of Policing, which has, you know, it's sold out its its print record and now it's basically free from, from the publisher because there's, you know, <laughs> you can't even get a, a copy if you wanted to. So um, it, unless it's free online. So um, he has a great book called The End of Policing. Um, just a number of uh, other um, uh scholars out there also working on this in, in, in conjunction with, with activists who are really forcing us to rethink everything we've taken for granted. And so the first thing I'd say is, you know, look, this is a deep problem. The history shows us how deep this problem is. And if you're serious about addressing it, it's not something that you can, uh, you really you know, come to a conclusion about and 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 begin to solve through tweets or through sound bites. You have to learn a little bit and be open to it. So, you know, read people uh, like Alex Vitali. Listen to these activists who are really telling us a lot about. Um, you know, changing the way we're thinking, right? Getting us to think more about, you know, when we have um, mental health issues in a home or domestic violence, do we really need police out there, heavily armed police? Maybe we should think about um, some kind of social services getting involved. And, and there's all a whole world of possibilities that we are only just beginning to talk about. And, and, and the first step Dan, is to, to be open to them. Um, part of the problem is that certain media outlets, I won't name names, certain pundits, immediately when they start hearing something like defund police, they, you know, they have this reaction like, oh, that's just a bunch of crazy lefties. And, and if you're really interested in solving these problems in America, then you need to get beyond that mentality and just say, wait a minute, let's hear, hear what these folks are saying. Let's, let's you know, open our minds a little bit. And you don't just shut it down by saying, oh, that's just a bunch of radical nonsense. I think what you learn when you really start to engage with people is in a lot of t in in many cases that that Venn diagram, you know, that that little area that both circles share is actually a lot bigger um, than uh, I think most people would think, yep. and and it's really to your point, just a matter of keeping an open mind and just a matter of being able to engage with someone as an honest actor um, that does it, and 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 add to that you know, the fact that the pundit class, uh, really has, uh, really has, has, has agitated for literally no other purpose than for us to buy pillows we don't need and, uh, and vegetable <laughs> supplements and yeah, any yeah. sort of other, you yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. so, so I, I think, you know, I, I think, I think it's, I, I think, I, 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 I don't think it's going to be, I, I, it's not an easy conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But there are things you can do to make it easier, you know? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, the first step is to just have something of an open mind, right? And, um, and, and don't shut it down. And, you know, look, this is something that it disproportionately impacts minority communities, non-white communities, but only in certain ways. In other ways, it impacts everybody. I mean, look, the money we're spending as a tax-paying, you know, citizen, right, Um it's 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 immense. You know, the amount of money, for example, that Chicago police, you know, has been going to Chicago police has tripled in the past decades. Right. Um, it's, it's crazy. And yet, you know, 
crime has somewhat gone down, but it, there's no direct correlation between the amount of money you pump into the police and the amount of safety we have. Not at all. In fact, there's arguments to say it's the other way around. So even just as a basic taxpayer, and this is what I'd say to your folks, uh, you know, more to the right of this conversation, yeah. um, you know, they're concerned about spending, they're concerned about austerity, they're concerned about uh, public money being used in wrong ways. That's a valid concern. And if you're concerned about that, take a look at policing and, and realize that throwing more and more money into policing is not necessarily the best way to, to increase public safety and, 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 and really just pay some attention. Again, if you like this episode, please leave it a review and share it. And if you didn't subscribe during the episode, now is a wonderful time to start. Now, in recording the last two episodes, so this one and the one prior, I've begun to think of America and every country for that matter as running on an operating system, effectively a set of programming that executes automatically based on a certain set of conditions. And if we go to our latest episode or our last episode, I should say, on America's farm policy, you know, that operating system was designed to create stability in the food supply by focusing on surplus production and when you combine that with the human tendency to eat whatever's in front of us has triggered an obesity epidemic. And if you're someone prone to weight gain, this environment is very challenging. Now, in the case of this episode right here, the operating system for modern day policing was engineered at a time when the increasing number of immigrants and African-Americans in our cities heightened anxieties among the native white population. And it led us to borrow policing strategies suited more to an occupying army than to a civilian police force. And in some departments now, this has been taken to a whole new level with the 1033 program that allows police departments to acquire military surplus without any oversight from the communities they serve. And I think we can ask what elements of this programming, what elements of this operating system need to be changed to reduce the level of violence in the streets on the whole? And that's something everybody in law enforcement wants. And you know, part of this is going to be a change in behavior for some police departments, but some of it is also going to come from us changing our perspective on what public safety means. And getting back to the SimCity analogy uh, I brought up in this episode, we really have to think about public safety as much as uh, a mechanism for preventing criminals from being created in the first place as much as we do from stopping criminals in the act. And so a lot of that comes down to mental health care. A lot of that comes down to better education. A lot of that comes down to removing the structures that create the desperation that breeds crime. And that takes a much different focus on what crime means and what it means to run a civil society. Again, if you have feedback on the subject, would love to hear from you. So you can email me at heydan at ydhty.com. The music we would normally be playing at this time is courtesy of Norway's finest, Quellertak. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable admiral, Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino Jason Putney. 
Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.